Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined by my co-host and star of the show, Hall of Famer Jim Cott. And this is Cott's Corner. We're on episode 255 right now in the network. And before we uh, we bring back Jim here and welcome him back to his show, just want to thank our audience here, 43,000-plus subscribers, now 73 countries. We added Cuba a couple weeks ago, and uh, we're, we're rolling strong here. We want to thank you guys. Make sure you continue to download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, and review. Let's give Jim a five stars today and give some good comments after the show so we can continue to bring you great content like we do here every week. And uh, Jim, you've been, you, welcome back to your show, first of all, and you've been a, a traveling man. I should have played that music before uh, before your show started here today. Yeah, Dave, this time of the year is, uh, it's a busy time for, it started with the national, with the induction, of course, for the National Baseball Hall of Fame, and then uh, Joe Maurer in Minnesota, several uh, national sports collectors show, uh, Phillies alumni weekend. So it's all been great, uh, but tiresome for me. And I even the guys younger than I am, you know, it's it's tiresome all the travel. But it, it really is uh, enjoyable to see the guys you played with and against and even some of the younger players that, uh, you know, our careers didn't touch. But uh, it's been a busy time of the year. Yeah, I would imagine that's it's it's rewarding to go back and see the places that you've helped build and helped establish. And we're going to get into this a little bit later, not only talking about the the celebrations and what they meant and who and who, what, when and where, but but also some things that you're noticing where you'd like to see that gap closed to in terms of the divide that we see out there in baseball. But uh, starting with the divide, I, I know we talked way back when you there was the induction ceremonies at the hall of fame. The commissioner meets with all of, uh, all of the hall of famers that are there, discusses changes, kind of the state of the game. And we did discuss how that went and, and, and you can go back and share a little bit, but there was some follow-up to that. Um, I wanted you to share that with our audience. Yeah. The commissioner, uh, really appreciated the meeting. It was a very relaxed, uh, setting, uh, in the morning, kind of a breakfast type approach and quiet and respectful. And, uh, Everybody had suggestions. Uh, I mean, uh, to a man, everyone uh, liked the pitch clock. I think of the 48 Hall of Famers there, there were 30 in the meeting. It wasn't a mandatory thing. Uh, They raised questions like the man on second, uh, facing three men, uh, analytics in the dugout, uh, the strike zone, which a lot of the borderline pitches around the knees uh, most felt from watching games on TV that there was a lot of those pitches that were called balls that should have been strikes. So the commissioner took those suggestions back, and uh, the letter we got said that he uh, he had his staff check all those out and kind of poll fans and, and check out what information they had. And surprisingly, just a very simple letter came back that more or less said the fans like things the way they are. Uh, I guess that depends on what group of fans you're talking to, because I, the fans that follow baseball that I know are not really that much in favor of the man on second. Uh, probably the people that are in favor of it the most are announcers because the games gets over with and doesn't go for 18 innings. But uh, I think I may have mentioned in a, one of our previous sessions jim Tomey, i thought had a great idea when he said why don't they start uh with a man on first after they play for example 12 innings and with a man on first you might 
you know, force teams to try to bunt or move the man over or, you know, the the way baseball was played years ago, get him over, get him in. Uh, but, but supposedly the majority of fans, uh, uh, if that if the surveys coming out of the MLB offices are correct, uh, fans kind of like it the way it is. Yeah, I know I wasn't polled. Um, I'm curious to see like yourself who was polled and and actually see the the straw votes there for, for that. Because man on second to me is, God, it reminds me of like kickball, gym yeah. class. And uh, yeah. it certainly takes the, the air out of the game, in my opinion. I'm a, I shoot. I'm, I like Jim Tomey's idea, but the thing I like about baseball the most is, uh, you know, and this does not include the pitch clock, but there's no clock. It's not like basketball or football where the game is going to end when the time runs out, you, you play till someone wins. And that, that's yeah. part of what I like or liked anyway. Yeah. I think what it is, it's really an indictment on what we've done to pitching because uh, I know coming into games, uh, where I, you know, the manager said, you think you can go an inning and uh, you go pitch the 10th and all of a sudden you pitch through the 16th before it ends. But, uh, you know, you can't do that today because heaven forbid they'd pitch a pitcher more than one inning. And then they use 13 pitchers. So, uh, you know, all of a sudden uh, they're out of pitchers. And we, we see that, of course, in some of these blowouts, which I think is really embarrassing to the game and and should uh should be reason to just forfeit the game is when they're so far behind, they bring a position player in to pitch. Yeah. I made a suggestion on that one. I think the, uh, I said, I think the analytics guy should be taken out of the, the back room and made to throw that inning since they're deciding to use pitchers in a certain way. And then they'll never do it again. I promise if they had to face it. That's right. Yeah, that's for sure. And you may not know the answer to this. and, And I just thought of this now, like, with a game that's always been so obsessed with, you know, statistics and numbers, you know, you're, it's a counting game. How many home runs, how many strikeouts, innings pitched, um, backs of baseball cards. Who's responsible for that runner from an ERA standpoint? I guess they don't care about ERA now, but who's responsible for that runner on second, extra innings? Is the pitcher that's well, on the if, if the if the pitcher with the ghost runner on second gives up that run, it is not considered an earned run. Gosh. Yeah, you'll look in the you look in the box score. I wondered about that at first, where I saw the losing pitcher, and it said runs one, earned runs none. So it's not it's not uh, charged as an earned run. I mean that pitcher still gets the loss, uh, but uh, it's not charged against his his statistical record. But offensively, the hitter gets the RBI still. Yes. Okay. That's uh yeah I ne- I never thought about it before because I just I guess I psychologically I blocked that rule out and it it's brought back today so yeah, yeah well I'm glad there was follow up I don't know if I necessarily uh, believe the validity of it because that seems crazy that you know, unilaterally yeah, all fans we were all the, the the people I've talked to since then around baseball we've all been a bit shocked at uh, the fact there wasn't more of an uprising um, you know about the they call it the ghost runner because I. I would say the majority of fans, and they can be from the young kids that work at our golf club to the guys in their 80s that are har har, you know, been watching baseball for years. Uh, nobody likes it that I talk to. Yeah, well, I guess if we take that, like we we take a look at our media out there today, it doesn't matter what your persuasion is. It's it's hard to believe what we hear and see now. So yeah. I uh, I think we may take our own vote here. We'll do that on on Real Voices of the Game. I'll pull it out on social media. Yeah, that that'd be good. It'd be interesting to see uh, 
what the fans' reaction, what the fans' reaction would be to that, or you know, to some of the other rules. Yeah, I think my my following may be a little skewed. I think I can probably guess the answers to them before they come out, but we'll do it anyway. First, I got to figure out how to do a poll on social media. I'm of the uh, I'm of the generation too that is uh, uh, technology can be a struggle sometimes. So I'll figure it out. I, I'm, I'm curious to see. I'm more curious to hear the comments. That's what that's yeah. what I want to see. So, but. Um, so you you uh you had a great trip there. Obviously, a great induction ceremony with with uh, Scotty Rowland got got in the Hall of Fame, and you spoke about his speech the last time, and then Fred McGriff as well, and got another guy up in Minnesota that could be knocking on the door. Um, what, what do you think of Joe Maurer's candidacy? He was recognized while you were up there in Minnesota, and tremendous hitting catcher. Uh, you know, loved his career. But uh, what's your thoughts on his candidacy? Well, first of all, even before the the thoughts on my candidacy, it really pointed out a difference in the attention that celebrations, uh, you know, demand today versus, uh, uh, say, 20. I, I went in the Twins Hall of Fame in 2001. Ken Herbeck went in in the year 2000. So we were seated next to each other with the 17 Twins Hall of Famers that were there. And Herbie said, yeah, there was three people at my celebration. And I said, yeah, there was one or two at mine, and I think we got uh, a minute and a half to speak. Well, Joe being, you know, local, maybe one of the best high school athletes ever in the state of Minnesota and a local boy, he had over 100 members of families and clo- of family members and close friends. He had, I think, at least 30 of his former teammates. So it was quite a celebration, and it pointed out uh, how revered Joe is and respected in the Twin City area, not just as a baseball player, an all-sports guy, and uh, and such a gentleman. And so when they played the highlight, uh, the video of his highlights as a catcher, I thought if every voting writer saw that, that little clip, not really a little clip, it went on for maybe a good five minutes, some of the plays he made and the hits he got were just incredible. And as you mentioned, when you look at a catcher who has won three batting titles, uh, has won an MVP, uh, was a was a great defensive catcher. Uh, I know it's going to be hard to get in on the first ballot with Adrian Beltre, uh, Billy Wagner, Andrew Jones, Todd Helton, but uh, I'd like to see Joe get in on the first ballot. I mean, we know he's going to get in eventually. So uh, I guess selfishly, because I'm eighty. Uh, I'd be 85, but he's a Minnesota kid. I'd, I'd really like to be there for his induction. Yeah. What, what, if anything, do you think the writers will nitpick at? Well, part of it will be his games played because he, he suffered that concussion, so he went to first base. Uh, the postseason play, I don't know if that is, enters into it. It's, uh, uh, it's kind of hard to figure what their list of boxes that they need to be have checked off. Uh, and of course, they're they can vote for ten, I think, but there there always seems to be that uh, that kind of barrier, uh, if that's the right word to use, to put a guy in on the first ballot. Uh, I think Adrian Beltre will go will go in first ballot, and I, I think Joe should. But uh, I can see uh, Todd Helton gaining ground, Billy Wagner, and. When I say gaining ground and we talk about things like that, it's still sort of 
it's still sort of hard to explain or understand why, if a player is really a Hall of Famer, why does he have to wait X amount of years to finally garner enough votes where they say, okay, uh, you know, I'd say some guys, well, yeah, I'm not going to vote for him the first ballot. I might put him in on the fifth. Wow. Why? What's your reasoning? So, you know, I wish that was a system that changed, but until it does, we, we live with what's there and we just hope that uh, the guys we feel that belong in there get get in there as quick as possible. Yeah, because well, it's not like they got better the following year. They're retired. They're not playing. And Yeah, their record is there. Yeah, well, I agree. I was, Maurer was um, played during my generation when I was enjoying the game as a, as a younger fan growing up and playing the game myself and thought he was a was a tremendous approach at the plate so I, I I think he's one of those those stars that often gets forgotten by the current generation uh, he's I guess you know I, I use the phrase to my kids and the kids I coach when they're hitting us let's be boring let's drive the ball up the middle let's spray the ball around the field and he was that way he was a 300 hitter every year um, didn't strike out a lot you know played his position defensively whether it's catcher or first base. You know, wasn't flashy, but he made all the plays he's supposed to make and was yeah. a tremendous athlete. I think that gets understated. Yeah, he was, I think, in high school, a uh, quarterback. I, I think he had offers to go to a D1 school, play quarterback. So he yeah. was a great all-around athlete. And, uh, yeah, I think he's an understated person. He was an understated uh, player. You know, he, he didn't uh, jump out at you as a rock hard defensive catcher like Pudge Rodriguez, you know, Joe's built more like a, a slender quarterback, but yet, uh, I mean, he had all the skills that you want as a catcher. And as you mentioned, when we looked at the video highlights, you mentioned using the whole field. I mean, he had sufficient power, but, but also, I mean, I think you have to go back to, Maybe uh, Ernie Lombardi. Yogi was a great hitting catcher, but you go back to Ernie Lombardi. I think that's in the forties. The last catcher that won a batting title. Yeah, you may be right. He won three of them. Yeah, and he was with another good lefty there, Justin Morneau. Right. Yeah. Good lefty hitters to get both. Did both both suffered concussions? Am I right in saying that? Yeah, uh, Justin suffered his, I believe, sliding into second. Yeah. But they, their, their careers, both of them were affected by uh, concussions. Yeah, tremendous duo, though. Both two sweet-hitting yeah. lefties. And- the M&M boys, the Midwest answer to Mick, uh, Madeline Maris. <laughs> That's right. I like them. And wh- um, what was the gap now? Was there, was there a gap between twins inducted, between Herbeck and Maurer? Was that the... Well, yeah. There, I mean, there's a, there's a few players inducted every year. But okay. Her- Herbie... Herbie, because he was a local hero, he went in with the original six, I believe it was Harmon, Rod, Tony, uh, Kirby, and Herbie, five of them. That was the original five. And then Herb Carneal and I went in in the second class. And then every year there's, uh, I think there were 17 of us. I mean, Greg Gagne was there, Den Gladden, Johan Santana, Joe Nathan. So it's not that they didn't in, induct everybody, but each year it's become more and more of a really uh, hyped up celebration where the early years it was just kind of, well, here's the guys we're putting in the Hall of Fame and you stand at home plate and you tip your hat and you say a couple words and go. Now it's a real production, which, which is nice because you the guys get to invite all their family and friends and former teammates and uh, really a special weekend. 
Yeah, I guess originally they treat it like what CIA or FBI. They take you in the basement, show you your medal, you got to give it back, and then you right. Yeah. No witnesses, no nothing. But um, you, as you're traveling now, and we've we've shared this on the show, and we talk uh, off the air together about this, and I'm as dumbfounded as you, but you continue to notice the divide between the current baseball ops and and the I, I don't want to say old baseball ops because it makes it sound, but the veteran baseball ops. Yeah, I would say the traditional baseball ops and today, the gap, every place I go, the gap widens. Uh, the It widens in terms of uh, a quick example. I talked to my good friend, Bill White today. Bill is 89, president of the National League. I thought he should have been, could have been commissioner. And he talked about how, you know, we had such respect and we couldn't wait to talk to the guys that did it before us. I mean, the days I spent sitting on the porch at the Otis Saga Hotel in Cooperstown during induction week when I was there to see others inducted uh, and, and those rocking chairs and have Bob Feller and Robin Roberts to my left and, uh, you know, Warren Spahn to my right and then Whitey Ford. I mean, I just soaked all that in. Uh, and, and each generation did that until this generation. And uh, I... Uh, Bill White, for example, today was shocked when I told him there's actually some coaching staffs that have no coaches that have had major league baseball experience. It's not a prerequisite. Uh, and I, I always thought when I announced games or uh, for all the years I've been involved in the game, I always had a contact or a very close relationship with a lot of pitching coaches. Makes sense. Well, now the Twins pitching coach, who was the assistant coach before uh, Wes Johnson left to go to Arkansas, and Wes had no big league experience, is Pete Mackey. I think he came out of Columbia. Well, I've met him once. He said he introduced himself and said, hi, nice to see you. I've had no other dialogue with me. Now, I was in uh, at the ballpark for a couple of days there. I did speak to like Pablo Lopez and Joe Ryan, some of the players, but uh, there's been no dialogue whatsoever. And I think that's by design uh, is that, look, you guys, that was a different era. Uh, you learned from uh, some of the players that played before you, but that doesn't work anymore. We have all the science and the information that says uh, we're going to do it a different way. And, and we think this way is better. What, what we uh, we had great discussions about was like Phil Roof, who was my catcher yeah. in Minnesota and then uh, I was talking to Marty Bystrom and Steve Carlton and Charlie Manuel, who managed the, you know, the Phillies for a while. And we talked a lot about sequencing and uh, how, you know, you used to go over hitters and say, you know, here's his strength. But there's a sequence of pitches to get to the particular pitch you want to get him out with. And I think in this statistical era, uh, it's just impossible for the analytical people to do that. And that was a big part of, uh, uh, of how we operated. Like say, okay, here's, here's this area down below here. Uh, I know Teddy Simmons and I talked about it in Cooperstown. Here's this area out here in the strike zone. This is where a guy's strength is, but, uh, or this is where his weakness is, but it's that, two or three pitches that you throw getting to that final pitch, the sequence of them that uh, kind of determines whether you get them out or not. And I think today it's much more of a, here's a way you pitch them and you just go at that zone 
Uh, you have a good slider. You throw slider, 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 one right after the other. Uh, so there's not as much art uh, involved in it. And that might be one of the reasons why the coaches, you know, don't feel that uh, the way we did it has any value. Yeah, but as as we both know, we're both living, breathing, thinking human beings. You know, with with human human beings, there's endless possibilities, and that that in itself should be worth the dialogue, if not for the respect and the potential to learn something. But yeah, I, but, I, but I, uh, it, is, uh, it it is getting wider. It's almost humorous. You know, it's uh, some days you say you laugh to keep from crying, but I noticed it a couple of years ago, and then every every uh, function I go to, uh, it ends up in a discussion where. And these are some of them are even young executives that are in the game today. It's just, yeah, I know they, yeah. they don't want to hear from you guys how you did it. So I think we're I think as a group, we are all uh, getting comfortable with the fact that, hey, we loved our era. Uh, we loved when we played guys we played with and against and the way the game was played. And it's different today. And that's why you find like today with Bill White, who was you know, National League president, uh, highest ranking black executive in baseball, first black baseball announcer, uh, made great inroads into uh, conditions for the black players in Florida during spring training. He has nothing to do with the game anymore. And, and that's kind of sad. He said, I'll watch it. Can't relate to it. Not interested in it. And that, that seems to be more the norm than the exception. Yeah. I, I, I don't like to hear that. We're going to, well, Mark my word on this show, episode 255, we're, we're going to keep banging the drum till we change that because that's all that's do is limiting the potential of the game of baseball. And uh, we'll keep doing it. You, you had you had mentioned uh, Alex Verdugo in, in pre-show stuff. What was you had an example of, of something with him? Well, I think that's an example of the of the me versus we attitude. And that's another thing that comes up in discussing with uh, some players younger than, than me that had, um, you know, had managed or coached or scouted, like, for example, Bob Boone, who uh, was my cat. He caught my first pitch uh, last Friday in Philly. He was my catcher in Philadelphia. And some of the, uh, the players, even, uh, even before that, Dave Hollins was there from the 93 team. Uh, I think, uh, you know, I think they've all realized that, it, it today more is a more me and statistics and what can I do, um, you know, to make my imprint on the game and get a big contract versus the we. And when Verdugo runs into those problems and you have to have Alex Cora do what he did to him, it it, uh, it reminds me of the essay, uh, the great John Scalinos, and I'm sure yeah. you've heard of him. 17 inches. Yeah, and he said the plate's always been 17 inches, but now – it seems like we're widening it. Seems like we're allowing players to get away with a little bit more. Uh, spring training is more relaxed. They don't spend as much time on the field. There's some days where, well, come to the ballpark at six today. The game starts at seven. So we're kind of widening that area. And the more we widen it, the more players take advantage of it. Yeah. And I like that. It's figurative and literal, literal and figurative. I like that. It's a, uh... I, you know, I was watching and I feel bad picking on them because they've been playing as good a baseball as anybody. The Braves, they were playing the Yankees the other night and my, my cell phone started blowing up because my players uh, that we are finishing up the season with um, will watch collectively and we talk the game uh, at separate houses. It's a way to turn the volume down. We don't 
listen to the commentators. Pop fly hit the center field, shallow center field, and the shortstop second baseman converged on it. The center fielder converged on it, and it landed in the middle. Nobody was covering second base, not even the pitcher moving up to do that. And uh, Volpe, you know, here, here, it's a positive for Yankees, which we don't hear and see a lot these days, and a negative for the Braves. But Volpe ran the bases, wound up with a double. But you had three guys converging with no communication and nobody filling in that gap at second, either middle coming back or pitcher. And I put it on social media and it blew up um, in a way that you and I would appreciate where people were yearning for the days of fundamental baseball, where, you know, we would think back to Little League where that would that play would be made. But um, no, I, I, I like that. I think 17 inches should be in every clubhouse. Um, yeah, I, I think what you just mentioned is an example of how the, the fundamentals, the little fundamentals like that maybe aren't drilled in spring training. Um, I can remember in spring training where we would create situations just like you're talking about. Uh, so let's say there's a pop up the center field and the shortstop and second baseman and the center fielder go out there. Well, who should be covering second? That's where I, I give a lot of credit to my friend Bobby Shantz, and then that's who I learned how to field my position. And Eddie Lopat said, he said, whatever the ball is hit, there is a place where you could be to help as a pitcher. So I always train myself, for example, if there's a base hit to left field, and now the second baseman goes over to cover the bag, the first baseman hangs near first base. Well, if the left fielder happens to overthrow the second baseman who was there unless the right fielder comes all the way in. So that was always an easy move for me to just move over behind second base to, and the, the pop-up you'd be, if you were the pitcher paying attention, you would be at second base. But the reason you would be there is not because you were better because you paid attention and you were trained to do that. Yeah. And so if, if guys, even on a team like the Braves, didn't do that, then I blame those who are training them for not enforcing that. Say, hey, this, this is where you have to be. That's important. Yep. And I, I think that's where uh, we widened the plate. Uh, as John Scalino said, we, we've kind of let those kind of things slide. Well, that's not that important. You know, just uh, get up there and hit a home run and swing as hard as you can. Or uh, it's the same thing with pitchers fielding, you know, when – the commissioner tells me that every team feels that analytics helps them win a couple games. Well, I said, think about what you said. If this team A is winning two games, team B is losing two games. Right. <laughs> so there, you know, there's a there's a reaction to the action. And I said, if your analytics department and their information is helping you win two more games, not teaching your pitchers how to field eight positions costing you more than the two games you win. So it still comes down to training your players to do the right thing on the field, play the game of baseball, uh, pay attention to the fundamentals, the way it's been played for years. Uh, we're seeing that lost. Yeah, I agree. And I so we, we had a show the other day, and I can't remember who was on. Um, it's that part's not not as important, but we got talking about analytics, and I got asked the question. It always people always say analytics are not bias, and I disagree. Um, so whoever made that formula up about, you know, it, it allowing teams to win more games, that formula is as biased and as fallible as the person who made it because a human being will make that ironically the formula. So it is indeed bias and it, it needs an audit. And that's part of what I think baseball needs an entire audit on that system. Just to, just 
to be black and white, just to, to keep yeah. it honest. But to, I, well, I've got a question for you but with the travel now, and I don't mean to take the the focus off of the, the baseball and the fundamentals, but um, j- just out of curiosity, when you guys are traveling and in terms of moving around the, the clubhouses and things like that, who's got more pull? You guys are the wives. <laughs> yeah, I mentioned that to you. We had a lot of fun with that in Minnesota. Uh, so it, it's kind of the age of entitlement. But, uh, you know, usually if you came out of the clubhouse and your wife and family went to the ball game, they were standing in the hall right side of the clubhouse. Then clubs had, you know, kind of a modest lounge where they could wait. And uh, there was always a media room where when we had functions, uh, I think there were, I don't know, maybe with, with Joe Maurer's teammates, he probably had 50 or 60 of us there. And there was always that nice little room. They had, you know, uh, water and Gatorade and stuff in there for you while you waited to go out on the field. So Julie, our marketing director, who's such a rock star, she puts all the parties together and she said, well, I have to tell you guys that the room you used to hang out in is now the wives' lounge. And uh, they did not want to give it up for one day. So we were sitting on these tables, uh, uh, around the tables out in the hallway, little plastic tables, and we're kidding each other. And we said, well, let's give Julie a ball and have her go in and get the autographs of the wives because they are obviously more important than the players that were the foundation of the organization. So we have a good time poking the bear about the way things are today versus uh, the way they were yesteryear. But that's, that's kind of a sign of the times, you know. There's uh, The twins have a room for the wives. They have a room for families that have small kids. They have a place for adult kids. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a regular recreational spot now uh, yeah. uh, that it wasn't uh, years ago. And I, I think they should be afforded some comforts, but it's kind of gone the other way. Yeah. And then you guys who helped built it are sitting in plastic chairs. So for Julie, for me, that would have been a marketing nightmare right there. If they took a oh, photo. It was. It was, she, she, had a, she had a hard time telling some of the guys that had been there longer than I haven't been back for all. This guy like Herbie, he's around there all the time. And he, they were shaking their head. They just couldn't believe that. But that's a sign of the times. If you guys took a nice photo, you guys sitting on their chairs and signed that, that could have been something for the yeah. ages. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, we're gonna. You went from you went to the. Uh, you recently got back. You talked about throwing out the first pitch to to Bob Boone, and I thought, boy, I thought appropriate if somebody had a fungo there, hit you a fungo back at you, and saw you field it and make the play to first. That would have been appropriate for for your career having all those gold gloves. But uh, to talk, share about the Phillies reunion. How did that go? Uh, that was. I mean, John Middleton, the owner, and his wife Lee, and and uh, Debbie Nacito, and all the staff with the Phillies. I mean, it was just a marvelous weekend of hospitality and generosity. Uh, you know, they honored the 93 and 83 Phillies teams that both went to the World Series. And then uh, players in the wall of fame, they put Ruley Carpenter, a uh, former owner, and John Quinn, who was uh, actually uh, Roland Heeman's father-in-law. Roland was a Hall of Fame executive himself. They put them in the wall of fame. And then Friday, uh, they were kind enough to it didn't work last year because of co uh, my wife and i had covid but they uh they honored me with a little video and then i threw out the first pitch so the all three days combined what it really gave me a chance to do which was so much fun because as he said uh he said kenny you're like my brother and that's charlie Manuel, who uh managed the phillies when they yeah. won the 2008 now here's a 
Here's an example of the difference in the generation of fans. So as they're announcing the players, uh, you know, Mike Schmidt, who may be the greatest all-around Philly player of all, and then Steve Carlton for Cy Young's, one of the greatest individual years for the Phillies in 71 when he went, I think, 27 and 10. They got nice ovations, but when Charlie Manuel comes out, he brings the house down. They just love Charlie. And because he's this country boy from Virginia that when they signed him, the press was saying, oh, they just signed the village idiot to manage yeah. the Phillies. They killed him when they said Oh, him. man. And uh, when I sat and talked hitting, you know, he was such an influence on Jim Tomey as a hitter. Uh, if I could have had some of the modern hitting coaches in there listening to Charlie with me talking about from a pitching standpoint, Charlie from hitting, uh, they would have thought we were from another planet. <laughs> but I really, and that's what I really enjoyed about that is, is hooking up with Charlie and some others as well. And, uh, really kind of rekindle the, you know, the things we, we learned about when we played and the things we used to our advantage when we played. Yeah. We, we've, he's, his name comes up in, in a number of our shows because we, uh, Mark Wiley, Will George have ties with, with Charlie and they speak of you know, great, uh, reverence oh, of him. And, and you know, we, we, uh, and I tell Charlie this, I said, Charlie, when you were sitting in the back of the bus singing country songs, we never in our wildest imagination thought you'd ever be a manager, but he started as a hitting coach. And then, you know, he's just one of those guys. And when Jimmy Rollins didn't run a ball out, he benched him for like three, four days. Yeah. And, uh, and yet when the next Tom Kelly was this way too, when the next day came along, he'd be right there, buddy, buddy with the guy. Hey, you forget it and move on. But they, they have that respect, uh, that they know you're going to discipline them if you do something wrong. But yet he's a, he's the type of manager that was, uh, you know, very encouraging and in, in guys that the players warmed up to. Yeah. Well, Cher, you, you, you hit on a couple of bookends of, of what makes Charlie Emanuel so special you talked about the beginning when they they hired him. Philadelphia is a tough town. People know that that it's a tough town to to win over. But when you win, they, they like you said the the ovation. They'll never let you go. What was it that they? What what was it about him that they just thought no way this can't work? I I think that they did their homework in talking to Cleveland. I, I'm trying to remember when Jim Tomey came in to play for the Phillies. Uh, uh, he may have been an influence there. Uh, I don't know if he was there before they won the World Series, but I'm sure they talked to Cleveland where where Charlie uh, was a hitting coach. He managed in uh, he managed in the minor leagues. He managed Jim Tomey in, uh, I think, Colorado Springs and some other uh, minor league cities. But I'm sure they did their homework and looked at the results and got enough feedback that they say, hey, this – this guy can do it. You know, I, they, they felt bad really for Tito Francona because Tito was there, but it was at a time when the Phillies weren't playing well. And when a team's not playing well, the manager catches it. And so they let him go. And of course he's gone on to have a hall of fame managing career. And then, you know, they kind of took a different approach in, in Charlie, which was just a good old fashioned hardcore baseball guy who knew an awful lot about hitting and was smart enough to, delegate authority to his other coaches and actually he uh, uh he the first call he made when he when he got the job in uh, cleveland was he called me and asked if i'd be his pitching coach 
And I said, Charlie, I would love to do that for you. But I said, I, you know, I, I got this announcing gig where I work about a third of the time and I have a lot of time to play golf and I, I just didn't want to do it, but uh, that's how close we were. And, uh, and I could, I could understand how, uh, how people would be, would fall in love with Charlie as a baseball man and give him a chance to lead their team. Well, I've, I've heard nothing but, um, positives about him as a coach, as a human, how could there possibly be naysayers? Like what, what were the naysayers? Uh... Well, I think because he, you know, he, he didn't speak the smooth language. Charlie has a little stammering problem and we, we you know, we kid him about it. Uh, but uh, I, I just think that he doesn't come across as uh, that polished manager that would speak the managerial talk to the media. He's just going to tell you what it is. Like he said, I remember the first time when they came to me and they said, here's a lineup that we suggest you might use today. And he, he tore it in half, threw it in the trash can. He said, nobody tells me how to make my lineup. <laughs> you know. So, you know, he, uh, in fact, that ties right into what Ron Gardenhire told me. And I was shocked to hear this, but Ron Gardenhire, who managed the Twins, and then he went and managed the Tigers. Uh, and they had a limit analytics person in the dugout, but he was facing, his back was to the field and he was facing his laptop sitting on a chair at the end of the dugout. And then as he entered different data, he would look, maybe look over his shoulder and make suggestions to Ron Gardenhire. And uh, he, he had to try to run him out of there in a hurry, but that, you know, that's kind of what exists today and what a manager has to put up with. Yeah. Well, I, I like the, uh, the Charlie Manuel style, I wish would become more prevalent with some of those suggestions with lineup cards. If, if nothing else, the lineup card is the, is the managers, um, you know, you know makes- if you, if you notice this year and I don't know if it will happen, I don't, there hasn't been a manager fired. Is there? Um, I don't believe so. No, because I think, I think it's going to be more difficult for a general manager to, fire his man. I mean, every day I get Yankee fans up here in Vermont. When are they going to let Aaron Boone go and Brian go? They're just hard on maybe the Yankees are under 500. You can understand that. They haven't been that way in forever. Uh, But I said, I think it's hard for a general manager to fire a manager because the manager is going to say, well, this isn't, these aren't my ideas. I'm just doing what you hand down to me from, from the geniuses up top there. So if you're going to fire anybody, fire them. Yeah, that's a valid point. Man- managers have almost become like middle management in corporate America where there's so much shield and and maybe they'll have more longevity now. But I feel bad for like an Aaron Boone. I don't know him personally. He comes from a great baseball family and uh, had, a, had a fine career. Obviously, Yankee lore with that home run he hit. But good defensive third baseman, knows the game. And, um, you know, he's got to feel helpless there. I was talking to his mom and dad about that because Bob was my catcher in uh... – in Philadelphia. And I actually got to know and I pitched to uh, Ray, his grandfather in spring training back in 1960. And Aaron was this little seven-year-old kid who could mimic all the players. He could do a Gary Maddox batting stance. He could do a Mike Schmidt. He could do my pitching motion. And Brett, his older brother, was the real stud player. Uh, and then Aaron came along and developed into a into a good player as well. And then, of course, as a manager. But uh, I'm sure he uh, he's on the phone with his dad a lot talking about what, you know, what goes on there. And I'm sure that's all kept confidentially as it should be. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I feel it's, it's very difficult unless you're a Dusty Baker, a Bruce Bochy, a Buck Showalter, 
I think Tito has that kind of clout now to uh, to just stand up and say, no, uh, you might make a suggestion, but I'm going to do it my way. Yeah, we would hope so with all they've done yeah. in the game. And, I, you know, again, we, we see all these manager outbursts uh, throughout time. You know, Earl Weaver, Billy Martin, they're, they're famous for their – their outbursts, but uh, I've seen Aaron Boone more so lately. Um, yeah. I often wonder if that's a product of the frustration. Yeah, he did a perfect imitation of the home plate umpire when he, when he yeah. showed, showed Laz Diaz how far outside he thought the ball was. But, yes, uh, yeah. Yeah. Even so, did the strike. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think a manager, you know, he, he you can't just sit there in the dugout and do nothing when your team is getting pummeled and uh, I mean, they used to use this lame excuse that uh, every now and there would be a knockdown brawl and uh, and some team would say, that's what we need to get started. You know, well, psychologically, that's kind of stupid. But I mean, you're always looking for some kind of a spark to to get your team uh, turned around in the right direction. And, and obviously, Aaron Boone and any of the Yankees are trying to do that right now. Yeah. Now, with, with uh, bringing it back to Charlie Manuel, the... The word that I hear about him, and you've you've touched on it uh, today, is that his players. This it's an overused phrase, so I don't want to say this and get lost in in its overuse. But that the players would run through a wall for him. What what? How how does he do that? How does how did he embrace the players? He was a disciplined guy. He, I mean, you could see. I that. think he shows. I think he shows the the confidence in him, and he's willing to listen to him. I remember when. Uh, Jason Worth, the right fielder, was a big part of that team. Uh, do you remember that name? Oh, yeah. Jason, good, good outfielder, had the long hair, righty swing. Right. And he went on to Washington, signed a big contract. But uh, I think he was with the Dodgers for a while. Then he came to the Phillies, and he was playing like part-time. And, see, Charlie can relate to that because he used to say to me, Kitty, I can hit if I play every day, but all they, you know, without the D.H., uh, he never got a chance to prove what a hitter he was till he went over to Japan. And if they'd have pitched to him, he'd have broken Sadahar's home run, Sadahar O's home run record. But uh, when he got close, they started walking him. But uh, Jason Worth went into Charlie and said, you know, I, I can play every day. I'd like a chance to play every day. I'm an everyday player. And Charlie said, okay, I'm going to give you that chance. And he, he proved that he could. So I think uh, that's the kind of manager that, that Charlie is and builds confidence in his players. Cause you know, if they stand up like that, he'll give them, he'll give them an opportunity to try to be the best they can be. Yeah. Why not? Right. They, they put it out there. If they do it, he wins. If they don't, he was right. right. And he can figure out how to make it happen. Can that happen today in today's game player to manager? I, I don't think so. I don't think there's any of that. I mean, <laughs> the guys, you know, some of the, uh, executives and media people were kidding me in the, in the suites. We had like three suites there for the weekend. And they said, uh, can you imagine one of your outfielders when a hitter came up to pull a card out of his pocket and say, this is where we play. I said, no, you know, we'd probably say him between, between innings. Hey, how about paying attention to the meetings before the game? You'll know how to play them. You don't have to pull a card out of your pocket, but I don't think that any, many of the things that they're doing today would, would play back then, nor would what we did, uh, or what managers, I should say, did. It, it just wouldn't play today because somewhere, I was trying to think of where the line of demarcation might be. I, I know uh, Tony LaRusso really had a specialized bullpen, Sparky a little before that. And then uh, I think the Rays, uh, 
I'm trying to think of who started platooning the most. And then the Rays, I think, started taking advantage of their analytic department to evaluate players. But then it's just swung and swung to where uh, that's taken over the game. Yeah. I would I would like to see people study some of these managers that were innovative, like Tony LaRussi. I mean, and all, all the managers we've spoken about today have their their place in terms of how they think the game. But study those guys, the Billy Martins, the the Tony LaRusses, the guys that did some different things because in there lies the endless possibilities of baseball. And I just get concerned with the analytics. Analytics presents limited possibilities. We're human beings. I mean, I I don't care what kind of computer they build. I still believe we're the best computers going, the humans. So, um, Well, you know, it reminds my brother-in-law, my late brother-in-law, Max Dupree, great business leader, went in the Hall of Fame with uh, Sam Walton from Walmart, Steve Jobs from... uh, Apple, I guess that would be. Um, And Max uh, wrote a book, uh, The Art of Leadership. Leadership is an art. And his suggestion was, if you're hired as a CEO, the first thing you should do is call the CEO that was there before you and say, what did you do that you wish you'd done differently? What are some of the good things you've done? And and, that was the the method in, in business as it was in baseball. And I that nowadays they hire a manager because he doesn't want to do things the way the guy before him did it, whether he's successful or not. Yeah. And that's a, that's a great point. And uh, yeah, I, I don't understand the logic in that because we learned so much from the past that, uh, you know, we're, we're, what's the, what's the quote that we're, we're, we'll fall victim to repeating it if we don't pay attention to it. And so yeah. in that, but um, well, with, with, uh, with your trip to Philly and I don't, you know, again, you, you have per- personal stories, personal communication, any, any, and I'm sure there were a lot of them, but any special stories you want to share conversations you had with some of the legends? Well, of course they, in, in Philly, when I first came over there, I had, I had started the quick pitch, the uh, working fast in uh, Chicago. And, uh, and then when I got to Philly, it was completely new and nobody in the national league do that. So they were, they were going over some of the, like Randy Jones and I hooked up out in San Diego. Uh, and we played the game in an hour 31. And uh, I knew a, a singer named Kenny Rankin. And Kenny was going to appear at San Diego State and at 9 o'clock concert. And our game started at 7. So I was going around the clubhouse. I said, guys, my job will be done in an hour and a half. I don't know about you guys. So... Uh, we didn't do too well against Randy Jones, but he we never did. He was Cy Young Award winner that year, I think. And uh, so the game went an hour 31. I had a car waiting for me, and I got a chance to be at the concert, I think, at about two minutes after nine. So they were going over some of the quick games that we used to play. Lefty worked fast also, Steve Carlton. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we had limited uh, – limited commercial breaks between innings and, you know, some of the, some of the, uh, Oh, like our batting practice pitcher. He, he said, I remember he used to take batting practice off me with the lead bat, <laughs> Henry King. And, uh, they, they remember little things like that, that I wouldn't even, uh, remember, you know, some of the things that happened, uh, happened in the game. So, uh, you know, like I might pitch nine innings today and then I'd usually be thrown in the bullpen, tomorrow and I'd always say you know if you need somebody for an inning we could do it well you know that kind of stood out then because because nobody did that oh gosh that would not that that wouldn't even be talked about nowadays that's against 
policy to, to speak about. You, and you and I went back and forth a little bit on text. I, I don't even know how I ran into him, but uh, Frank, he, he, uh, if you remember, you said you, you, he was, I think he was the traveling secretary for Philadelphia. Well, Frank Koppenberger. Koppenberger. Yeah, Frank, Frank is going to uh, be on a show with you and Kevin. Yes, he is. We're having yeah, him on. Yeah, Frank, Frank was telling the guys, see, Frank was Philly's director of travel. And right. when he was in, uh, when he was in St. Louis, you know, he was uh, kind of the assistant uh, equipment manager on the home side. And so now it's 1983 and I'm 44 and uh, there's rumblings about me not being there anymore. So every day I would come in the clubhouse, Frank and Buddy Bates would say, oh, you still here? We thought they released you yesterday. Just kidding me, of course. And then I look over in the corner, my uniform shirt was hanging there. And I said, nah, I got one. I got another one of those big league uniforms for another day. You know, they don't give that many of them out. And I said, I'm going to be here until I think I picked July 3rd or something. So we literally had a virtual pool as to how long I would stay and when I'd get released. And I won my own pool because I got released, I think, on July 5th. That's the kind of lighthearted banter. Uh, that went on in clubhouses. And, and Frank and I have been friends now. If you go back to 82, yeah, we've been friends for over 40 years. Yeah, he he spoke finally of your relationship and had some great stories when we talked on the phone. I said, don't use them all up now. Let's uh, see. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's got plenty of them. <laughs> oh, my gosh, yeah. he's uh, he's He's got a ton. And he, now, was he, was he there in Philadelphia? Did he make it? Yeah, he came He came to the uh, to the weekend because he was uh, he was the uh, – director of travel for the 93 team. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Cause he had mentioned, he said, well, make sure you say hi to Jim for me. I said, I think you're going to see him. In oh film. yeah. So you can say hi in person. So, well, um, we, we've kept you for over 50 minutes. Is any, anything Did we forget anything? Is there, um, and then do you want to tease the audience on next week? Well, I, I just think now we, we reach that, uh, we reach that point where you find out whether the teams like Baltimore that aren't accustomed to being there, um, uh, are suddenly going to get up and say, Whoa, it's September. Like, uh, Keith Hernandez mentioned, uh, I think he mentioned in his book when, when we came to September one, um, uh, it was a tight race in the national league East between Montreal Phillies and our club. And uh, he said to uh, Gene Tennis and myself, Gino was an old veteran from the Oakland championship teams. He said, well, you know, I'm, I'm coming to the park now and starting to realize the importance of it is I'm getting a little nervous. And so Gino and I said, Keith, would you rather be in this position or would you rather be 25 games out just playing out the season? So you, we're going to find out which teams are comfortable in this month of baseball that will be uncomfortable in many situations because all of a sudden that that one pitch, that one hit, one game uh, with the third wild card is going to be the difference between getting to play in October and going home. Yeah, and there's so many teams make it now that three-quarters of the league is still kind of in the race, but I, I agree. I, I've enjoyed watching Baltimore this year. I, I think they have – you know, I don't want to say they've totally gone against it, but you, you see them – hitting the ball the other way, line drives, singles. Again, I saw him play the Yankees a couple of series ago and, and uh, was really refreshed with how they were swinging the bat. They were just putting the ball in play. And yeah, they, got some, they got some young, talented players, and I, and I like the guy they got that's running the show, Brandon Hyde. You know, I just had 
conversations with him. But sometime if you've been around baseball for a while, you could you could just talk to a guy and tell whether or not, you know, he's he's a kind of guy you got confidence in his ability to lead people. And I, I certainly got that impression from him. Yeah. And those are guys too. I, I've mentioned this to, to some of our other hosts on the show because you're not alone with how you feel in terms of um, the divide there. And you know, and I, I I shared with them the adage that they shared with me as coaches in the beginning. When you take over a, a team, you coach the guys that want to be coached, and then you bit by bit kind of whittle it down. And I kind of offered that thoughts to them. I said, "There's there's baseball guys out there. We talked about you know Boone today and." and maybe hide. And there's baseball guys out there that want, need, and would crave your guys' knowledge. And I would challenge those those guys that are listening right now, because we have 900 college coaches subscribed to this podcast and uh, countless high school grassroots coaches throughout the globe. And we are in, you know, we're grassroots all the way to MLB front offices. So there are, every front office has people listening to the show. If you're out there and, and you crave baseball and you want to get better and you want to balance the you know, the, 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 the veteran voices out there, reach out to these guys. They'll, they'll talk to you. They, they want to talk, they want to share. It's free information and it's God, it's, it's good. It's gold. So, um, I, I, I hope they, I hope there's a couple out there that's starting and maybe it's a trend and we'll swing. Yeah, this I, don't, I don't know if it, you know, being on the sideline, I don't know what I could, uh, what I could offer, but I think this is where the lack of having some coaches with big league experience could be, a real factor in September. Absolutely. Because if you've got guys that haven't been in a pennant race and, uh, you know, it's 162 games, you're coming down to that finish line. And and that's why, you know, when you talk about the spin rate and things like this, you throw that out the window. It's like they say about the fifth set of tennis. It's, it's just all about what's inside of you. And so that's, this is the month where, you have to find a way to be comfortable when things are uncomfortable. And if you've never been across the lines into that situation, uh, I don't know how you can relate to a player and give him any kind of uh, encouragement or advice because you've never been there. Agreed. There's no math formula that can simulate that at all. And I've got one more question for you. And then, um, then I, I promise I'll, I'll let you go here because we're closing on an hour and I appreciate all the time you've given. So, you know, the baseball season, we have to hear about all these, you know, analytics driven decisions. But if we've noticed the last couple of years, at least maybe even longer in the playoffs, baseball changes in the playoffs. That smaller sample size isn't as friendly to the numbers and the formulas. Um, bunting, moving guys over, you know, with the hit and run, hitting behind runners. Um, do, do you notice that as well, that the baseball becomes a little bit more, um, we'll use the phrase old school in the playoffs? Well, I, I think it if, if that's the personality of your team or your manager, you have guys that can do it. They should. But then there's that, uh, I'm trying to think, it was a, it was a younger uh, fellow, but a media person that mentioned to me not too well, uh, long ago that in the postseason, a lot of teams feel like you're better off squaring one up and hitting a home run off Justin Verlander than you are getting three singles. Uh, so I, I don't know. If you, if you have... Uh, a bunch of guys like Luisa Rise, I think you can get three singles. So it kind of depends on the personality of your team. I know with the with the Cardinals when we won in '82, it was uh, hey, get me ten singles today. Whitey Herzog would say we were a single stolen base team. So I don't know if if uh, managers can change their philosophy if they ask guys to bunt and they've never bunted. You you just can't do it. They haven't been trained to do it. But 
I do think those those little things, uh, you know, where you where you used to have more bench players, where you could use a pinch runner late in the game that had some speed, uh, you know, that would be important. Like Dave Roberts when he stole second base for the Red Sox, those those kind of things in in the postseason games can can be important because if the if the elite pitchers are on their game. Uh, you're not going to get that many opportunities to score against them. Yeah. And you mentioned the, the, the guy's name, Luis Arise. At what point in time do we recognize him as a superstar? Well, I, he's going to have to win a, a number of batting titles like Rod Carew. You know, I told Rodney, and he admits it, he, you know, he spent a lot of time talking to Arise about, uh, about hitting. I remember one time he used watch on TV and he said, Luis, you're carrying your bat too low. you got to get it a little higher. And he went on a rampage after that. But I think uh, guys like that will not get as much uh, recognition today because of the, the, you know, the way the game is played. It's the, uh, they look at Kyle Schwarber, you know, I think he's, he's leading off. He's hitting about a buck 80 and he's a home run or, or strikeout guy. And, uh, you know, he's highly thought of uh, and very important to that Phillies lineup uh, just because every now and then he squares one up and, you know, he more than every now and then, but he just squares up home runs. So he, he gets a lot more attention than a table setter like Luis Arise would get. Yeah. And the part, the part that I, and I like Schwarber, uh, the part that bothers me about Schwarber's game now is when he came out of Indiana university and he came into up through the minor league system, he was known as a 300 hitter. He was a guy that, that, that was, had high average, decent power. And it just, it, saddens me to see when you even when you said 180 I got shivers and I cringed a little bit yeah I can't even imagine and and you know how it is when you play and I, I remember playing minor league baseball they flash your batting average on the the, the scoreboard every time and right. there were times when I was around that 200 mark early in the season because you know you, you're one for five or two for ten and um boy I used to just I used to I wouldn't even look because I was just okay I got to get a hit got to get a hit get that can't think that thing can never fall below 200 and you winded up there around 280, but uh, yeah, I just the I guess that that mindset is gone. Yeah, I think because you know I I don't think the uh, averages on every at bat every game were in style when I played back in the 80s. But I remember Pete Rose when he was with the Phillies and Larry Bowl would get a double and it would say you just jied Johnny Callison for tenth place on the all time Phillies list and Pete <laughs> Pete would look at him and say really. Johnny Callison, let me show you some names. So Pete would get a double and they'd say, Pete just tied Lou Gehrig or something. Yeah. And then he would always say to a lot of the guys, well, you have to wait till Sunday to see your average because they publish them all in the Sunday papers. But I can see mine every day because they always put the top 10 in the paper every day. <laughs> so a lot of the guys hitting, that's where the Mendoza line came from is on Sunday when you look down these hundreds of hitters, uh, you know, Mario Mendoza was down at the bottom at about 200, and that was the Mendoza line, bottom of the list. But right. uh, they didn't they didn't put him on the scoreboard. Now, yeah, that, that's not only with your average, Dave, but there are pitchers that will turn around and look at that miles per hour. Oh, yeah. And the Yankees used to play with it before it was automatic. And Armando Benitez, if he turned around and saw 92 instead of 98, why, well, he'd want to throw it through the screen. So oh, so they, that's what kind of things affect them. <laughs> I never thought about that. Yeah. See, that's one track I was thinking as a hitter, but I could see where somebody obsessed with that would do it. They do it in the minor league stadiums now too. Every pitch they 
Oh, they even show the vertical. <laughs> Margie was sitting. She said, now, vertical break, horizontal break, uh, you know, miles per hour. I said, I don't know. When do they when do they start measuring it? When it comes out of the hand, when it gets to the plate. I heard there are some of these automatic machines now that catch the ball in the middle of the plate and some in the front, some in the back. So uh, for the most part, to me, it's all white noise. I, I enjoyed when the New Zealand kids went through the Hall of Fame and we went downstairs to look at the early accounts of the game. And the first newspaper accounts back in the, I think it was the 1860s of some professional games, the only thing they kept track of was runs and outs. That's right. And I said, isn't it interesting that that's all we really want to keep track of today? You get 27 outs and you score one more run the other team. That's right. That's that's a complicated simplicity right there. That's all it should be about. And yeah. it goes back to kind of brings us full circle on the whole show. We talked about the, the you know, the me, the me versus we generation. That's kind of where we're at with the stats, too. And uh, yeah. I, I, I got one funny one for you. We, we, we were guests at the the Pelicans game the other night with Cubs minor league stadium. It was actually a, a good, well-played game. There was balls put in play. Uh, pitchers were throwing a little bit, um, you know, a little bit trying to hit the velocity, but all those analytics you spoke about are prevalent in the game. So they'll post, you know, spin rates and exit velocity and whatnot. And we were sitting up near the the booth, like right under the booth. And um, on three separate occasions, they had all these things up like seven, eight bits of analytics, but they forgot to update the outs on the scoreboard, but they had everything else, all the spin rates. And, and I turned, I said, don't forget the outs. It's kind of the important thing right there. And I know the guys up there, so they, they, they kind of got it. They shook their head. I know we got so many other things to put up there. You forget, yeah, the right. <laughs> forget the basics, but well, Jim, great show today. We appreciate the hour you gave us. Glad to have you back from, from all your travels. I know you said you got one more trip to go. Um, wish you a safe and happy trip and hope it hopefully doesn't take too much out of you. Um, but well, we'll it's just, a, just across the border down to New York a little little ways. And now uh, look forward to our next show. And we'll start talking about the, uh, you know, crunch time with these uh, with the diluted wild card that uh, gives everybody a chance to, you know, it's kind of a reward for mediocrity, but it yep. gives fans a chance to pull for their team to at least get into postseason. And we'll be able to talk about the possibilities of uh, who's going to get in and who isn't. Yeah, no, I look forward to that. And to our audience, uh, keep keep supporting what we're doing. 43,000-plus subscribers now. Episode 255 on Real Voices of the Game. This is Cott's Corner with Dave D'Agostino and the Hall of Famer Jim Cott, the star of our show. Jim, great show today. We appreciate you so much. Thank you. I enjoyed doing it. Thank you.